Church, last Sunday, if you were here, we had uh, what we call Vision Sunday. We shared what we felt like is the word of the Lord for our church this year and this season. A couple different words and phrases that I shared this last week. One was that it's a new day. It's a new day. It's a new day, both personally, uh, areas where we need to kind of move from somewhere to the past, areas where we need just a fresh restart button, uh, where we need the grace of God to move forward in some area of life or maybe to get clear or reignite the passion of God in our life again or whatever it is. It's a new day of grace for us personally, but also corporately. <clears throat> felt like it's a new day, not that we have a new mission as a church or new values, but there's grace, I just feel like from the Lord, there's going to be a grace from the Lord this season for our church to go about our mission with great clarity, great fruitfulness that happens not just from the outside in, but from the inside out. But there's a new day of grace and clarity for us individually and us corporately. But the second word I shared briefly that felt like from the Lord was just a promise that as we step into this new day personally and corporately, that his promise that he will build and expand his people in his church. <clears throat> he will build and expand his people in his church. And I, and I believe that's both personally, I believe God wants to build into us in new ways. That, that different ones of us, we're going to grow and mature in new ways. God wants to build strength and build hope and build wisdom into different ones of us or we need it. It's a day where God is going to build us. And we actually, as a leadership team and pastoral staff, are focusing and doing some new things I shared last week to build into you and marriages and families and your season of life more than ever before so we can, we can really build, uh, yeah, the lives of people. Uh, but also felt like um, that means that God wants to uh, build us stronger and outward as a church as we continue into the promises of God for us as a people. I don't know how many of you guys were into Legos, guys and ladies growing up. If you're Lego people, I can't say that I was necessarily the Lego expert, but I did do plenty of Legos. And, uh, you know, the thing about Legos, it's not about hastily stacking things and putting them on top of each other, right? You can stack them as quick as, you po as possible to beat your sibling or whatever kind of crazy things we did growing up. Uh, but the result, if you're going as quickly as possible, is that you're going to hear that dreaded falling sound of all the Legos. You know what I'm talking about, that, that sound when all the Legos are falling, that for many homes today is followed up with tears uh, of children. If you are trying to be hasty and stack things just on top of each other, uh, right, you might have great passion. You might have great zeal for your Legos. But if you don't build well, it's going to come tumbling down. But if you played a few Legos, you know that it's about stacking and building well, right? It's, it's about building that right foundation, right? I'll never forget the day I remember to interlock the blocks. You know, you, you don't just put them on top of each other. You interlock them as you build up, right? It's about having wisdom and strategy as you build your Lego thing well so that it uh, lasts even when it gets kicked over by a sibling, right? So... Um, in, in, in the same way, I really believe in this season as a church, and even in this sermon series, which we are about to start, which I'll talk more in a second, I believe what God wants to do in us personally and corporately is, first of all, for us to discover a God of redemption who 
rebuilds and restores lives in a way that lasts. We have a God of redemption. I'm going to tell you about him today. And secondly, uh, I believe God wants to develop us into a people, both personally and corporately, who build our lives well. God wants to develop us into people that build into our hearts and know how to build into ourselves so we become the strong men and women of God he's called us to be. God wants to make us a people that know how to build into our relationships so we have healthy friendships and relationships and dating relationships. God wants us to learn how to build into our homes, men and women, into our marriages, into our kids, to build homes at last. God wants to teach us to build into our careers and our callings and the things he's called us. He wants us to build in a way that will leave a legacy. And I believe as a church in the same way, God wants us to teach us and to train us how to build as a people so that uh, both in this house and as we go every Sunday out there uh, throughout the week, God wants to build us in such a way that we be people that build and leave a legacy as we partner with a God who rebuilds and restores lives. So I'm excited to be studying the book of Nehemiah together. I am really excited about it. We're calling it Nehemiah, Building for Revival. Um, we'll talk more about the book in a minute, but it is a, a book of, of building. It's about the work of God calling his people to rebuild a city and to rebuild a wall. And as it is in most Old Testament books, it's not only uh, part one part of a much larger storyline, which I'll talk about in a second, that points to a redemptive Messiah and Savior, but it's also a picture of the spiritual realities that we live in and face every day, and it's relevant to every aspect of our lives today. And so um, it is a broad and multifaceted book, and its application into our lives can be many. There's much revelation to take, both about building into our personal hearts, building into leadership things, building the church, building into cities. That God has called us as a church to be a city within a city in the sense that God has, 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 has made us citizens of heaven that live as citizens on the earth. What does that mean? There's lots of rich different application that God is going to show us through this book. But God's going to speak a lot. And, and uh, similar to our theme of, of, uh, of building and expanding, I believe God wants to speak both personally and corporately. God, through this book, wants to teach us to build uh, um, into our hearts, our marriages, our families, our relationships, as well as uh, to be the church. And so God might speak each week differently to different people than the word next to you. I might speak to you more on a personal level than the person next to you more on a corporate level. Some weeks I might kind of uh, hone in on, on one side of the application a little heavier, uh, but the, the idea is that when we come to the word of God, it is rich, it is alive, it's relevant, and it's gonna speak into every area of our lives, and so I'm expectant for that. And um, you know, the reason we uh, are called to be people that build well is not only because we're Christians, but we really believe that God's called us as a church to be people who are land takers. We take land in our hearts. We take land in our families, in our homes. We take land uh, in, in, in our workplace. Uh, we take land in, in the hurt and the needs out there. We're people that advance the kingdom of God forward. We bring forward the good news. We bring forward the hope of Jesus. We do not retreat when the world around us gets hard, but 
when the world around us is hard, God has called us to be the brightest and to bring the most hope in the world around us. And if we're going to do that, we need to be people who learn to build wealth. Um, just a little context for where the book of Nehemiah falls. I said that, um, you know, whenever we read a book, it's not just uh, an isolated event, but it's one part of a much larger storyline that we see of, of a redemptive story that God is writing. So let me just take for a few minutes and catch you up on some Old Testament history so that we know the context as we study the book of Nehemiah together. And I do want to invite you to be reading through, if you're not doing a Bible and a year plan, uh, be reading through the book of Nehemiah along with us. So many of you guys know that God created the heavens and the earth, and he made us as humans to live in fellowship and walk with him, to enjoy him, to enjoy the earth, to have meaningful work. And you know that uh, a couple chapters later, (coughs) sin entered into the world. Human beings, we invited sin into the world, and what that did is it broke our relationship with God, it broke our relationship with one another, and as we look out, therefore, in the world around us, it's kind of like if someone took a compass and threw it in the ground, everything's kind of off kilter, right? Uh, we, we live in a broken world because of that, <clears throat> and ever since that moment that sin entered the world, God began a redemption and rescue plan that we see throughout the story of Scripture. Uh, One of the beginning places that started was when he chose a people for himself, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And he didn't choose a people for himself to exclude out the world, but he chose them so that they would reach the world, and he would reach the world through his chosen people. They find themselves in slavery in Egypt. God miraculously calls and takes them out of it because he compassionately sees the hurt and the pain they're going through. God takes them out of it into the promised land. And there they live for about 400 years without a centralized government, right? So God raises up these judges. It's kind of a crazy book. God raises up the book of Judges. God raises up these judges. They're kind of like these, these like governor, war hero kind of people to kind of govern the land, and, and the people of God are kind of getting disgruntled. They're like, well, we want a king, not just judge. We want a king like the rest of the nations around us, right? That's what we want. God's like, hey, I'll be your king. And the people are like, no, 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 like, cool, but we still want a king, right? And so, <clears throat> sure enough, God's like, okay, I'll, I'll give you what you want. And so uh, the first king, Saul, the guy kind of was a mess. Uh, you'll see, didn't work out for Saul. Uh, then David gets raised up, who's kind of known as Israel's greatest king. So he's a king of the people of God. His son, Solomon, took the throne, was the wisest man uh, alive, and, uh, but also invited a lot of idolatry into uh, the life and the culture and the people of God, mostly through his own sexual sin. And because that's what happened when we just uh, blatantly invite sin into our lives and leave it unchecked, division and brokenness happen within the kingdom of God. Uh, they were kind of redivided up into 12 tribes. Most of them were in the northern kingdom known as Israel. Uh, Judah was in the southern kingdom, and um, the southern kingdom existed longer, but eventually both of, them were, both of them were conquered. The northern kingdom, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians. Why were they conquered? They were conquered because of their disobedience before God. God had promised them very clearly along this story that if you will keep 
my covenant, and if you will stay, because God, you know, God's promises to people, if you'll stay under my covering, if you'll stay under my defense and my blessing, then you'll be blessed. But if you break the covenant and you pull back away from my covering, and you pull away from my blessing and my protection and defense, well, you'll be conquered. And sure enough, they got destroyed. And so the Jewish people found themselves in Babylonian exile uh, by, the, by the, in the people of Babylon. And it was a mess. They were uh, all kinds of war crimes you can imagine happening, were happening. Uh, they found themselves, because of their own disobedience and going away from God's covering and protection, found themselves in a broken place. And God, even in his grace there, even used that uh, to, to correct and to cleanse because um, if you're, to, if you're to study it, maybe slightly debatable, but, but really, at that point, God cleansed his people uh, of, of idolatry. You don't see them going after the Baal or, or Asher, the different gods they used to worship as, as they experienced um, um, defeat there. kind of cleansed their heart of some of the idols they used to worship. <clears throat> And so they find themselves in this place of defeat. They find themselves in this place of, of being exiles again in a foreign land with their city and their country destroyed. They're, many of the people died, and, you know, they're, they're, they're basically prisoners and slaves. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of their own sin and their own rebellion against God, God's mercy is so great as his focus is always restoration. Right, he he he. His question was, "How can I bring them back into the promised land, and and how can I be faithful to my promises to them, even though they were unfaithful to me?" And you'll see this list here of even in the midst of their exile, these prophetic promises that were coming forward. If you want to pull that slide up, uh, that God promised a future messianic king. God promised His presence would dwell again in a new temple. God promised His kingdom would rule again. Over the nations of the earth. Now, some of these would, would begin to be fulfilled uh, in, in the coming books, and some of them uh, ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, but, but you see God's mercy here again, uh, because exile is not the end of the story for God's people. Nor was it the end of the calling to bring light to the nations of the earth. And so enter in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. How y'all doing? You track with me? So this redemptive, you see the story of God's redemption. Enter in now the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now these books uh, are next to each other. They actually were originally one book. Okay? And what's happening here is that Yes, the people of God were in captivity in Babylon, but God in his grace raises up this secular leader from the Persian Empire, and Persia overthrows Babylon. And God uses these secular leaders to show mercy to the Jewish people. And they are released, basically, over time, they're released uh, from being Babylonian slaves. And they're released uh, to go back to their place if they so choose. And you see God's faithfulness not only raise up people who would fight for them and release them from their captivity, but you even see God's faithfulness in raising up shepherds and various types of leaders among the people of God, again, who were once slaves. And so we come to Ezra and Nehemiah here, and the people of God began to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem in waves. 
Now, Ezra led one of those waves back to Jerusalem. Ezra and the book of Ezra is basically about the rebuilding of the temple uh, in in Jerusalem. That happened before the book of Nehemiah. Uh, And it is interesting. uh, The first thing that starts getting rebuilt is later... Just hit a radiator. The, uh, the book of Nehemiah. Think, you know, this city where it's almost like ISIS hit a radiator. The place was bombed. It's kind of in shambles. That's that's where they find themselves and where we find them. And now I want to read Nehemiah chapter one. Uh, we're going to go through most of it, or a chunk of it today. Uh, pick up some of one as well as some of two next week. I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter one. If you need a Bible, uh, you can. Uh, Put your hand up. We'd love to put, put it in your hand. The words of Nehemiah, the son Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven and great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts, are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Just want to bust through these first um, couple verses here real quickly. Okay, you see, you see, you see Nehemiah here, um, and uh, Nehemiah is here, and so he's kind of a central figure of this story. And um, the work, I just want to bring attention to the fact that the work that happens here of revival, of restoration, of rebuilding the wall didn't happen through a, a vocational minister. It didn't happen through a priest. It didn't happen through a prophet. It didn't even happen through a king. It happened through an ordinary guy who was like working in the Persian government. Uh, and, I'm sorry, an ordinary guy who was, yeah, working in the Persian government. And, and uh, God anoints this person. He anoints this ordinary person to bring great reform and great revival. And I love that because uh, it's when ordinary people allow God to break their heart and take action about it, God moves. Verse 3, it says this, they said to me, the remnant there, when he was asking and inquiring, how were the people doing, how was Jerusalem? It says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. When it talks about that great trouble and shame, the, the, the people of God were in trouble. And they were, they were ashamed. That word ashamed literally means reproached or, or to be disgraced or discredited. The people of God were seen as outcasts. They were disgraceful. And the walls were broken down. Like I said, picture a scene from like, you know, a, a city maybe as you see in the news and like in the Middle East being bombed. Just, just the city was ravaged. There was just little to nothing left. And, uh, and uh, then in verse 4, you see Nehemiah's response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Why did Nehemiah respond that way? It's an interesting thing contextually because this wasn't new news. It had been this way for 141 years. He surely knew about this already. It's like if I turned uh, to, to my wife and I was like, hey, babe, Abraham Lincoln is dead. You know, Nehemiah wasn't like, What? I never heard that before, right? Why did, I mean, he was, it says that he wept and mourned for days, and he was fasting and praying before. It hit him, you know? It says that he he sat down when he heard the words. You ever had that? You heard news, and you're like, I gotta sit down for a second. It hit him hard, right? And I don't, I don't think it's because he was, he was um, kind of just sitting around reading poems and crying or at work or whatever. No, he's like this cupbearer dude, right? He, he's like, cupbearers basically drink whatever drink or wine is given to the king before them so that it's poisoned, it doesn't get to the king. So he's the kind of guy who's like, hey, hit me, you know, whatever you got, uh, I'll take the bullet. You know, he's like this like secret service kind of guy, you know? Uh, so, so I'm probably more emotional than him, but I can imagine he was just kind of like a kind of, you know, secret service guy or whatever. It's not, it's not a new news to him. It's old news, but it's still news to him. And what God is doing in here in Nehemiah is a fresh work of breaking his heart for the things that break God's heart. When God wants to do something through us, he first does something in us. The work that God does starts with the heart. God is aligning Nehemiah's heart with his heart. And God begins to deal with the stuff in his heart and our hearts so that God can fill Nehemiah with his burden. In the kingdom of God, brokenness precedes fruitfulness. God was about to do a great thing, but what God did first was he called a person and he broke him. He broke his heart. And I think it's clear that as we look around, we live in a broken world, right? It doesn't take long to remind us. Like just in a few weeks, we had a garage door break. Like it was like it was like completely bent. Like how in the world did that happen? Our heater went out. We had the guy come to fix the heater. He's like, hey, you probably need to fix your whole AC unit too. I had a car issue. To top it off, I'm mowing my lawn, and all of a sudden I hit something. I'm like, what is that? I looked down, a bush had hit the gas cap, 
unscrewed it off. I screwed over my, I, I mowed my gas cap in a million pieces. So now my lawnmower is like spraying gasoline, like just gasoline flying over. I mowed over my gas cap at the end of that little week to top it off. I was like, the bush attacked my, my gas cap, <laughs> right? We live in a broken world, right? The things around us just come at us and overwhelm us. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm half kidding here, but, but just heard some statistics more recently that we, we, we do live in a broken world. There's about 20 million people in slavery today of some type. 145 million people who are orphans. There's 1 billion people in the world who still don't have access to clean water today. Just in the U.S. alone, there's 11 trillion people uh, in personal, uh, I'm sorry, 11 trillion, not people, 11 trillion in personal consumer debt. That's not like, uh, that's personal consumer debt. I could keep going and going. We look here in our own city, in our own backyard. Right, we have a ministry called Unbound because there's human trafficking happening right here in Orange County and even right here in Fullerton, Anaheim are hot spots for human trafficking because people will come uh, and, and sell people in Orange County because people will pay more for them in Orange County. Talked to a few friends who've, who've done the math and it's estimated that, that on a given Sunday, uh, there's... Uh, you know, maybe maybe 100,000 people, that if every church was full in the city, there'd still be 100,000 people who are either not in church or maybe don't even know Jesus. I've, I talked to people again and again in our city that have like, I've never heard about a personal relationship with Jesus. I've never heard the gospel or the good news. We look on our streets and, and we have... Uh, people struggling with homelessness and, and mental health, and then I get on, you know, my neighborhood app, and everyone's screaming at each other over how to deal with it, right, and everyone's in war with each other in our city. We live in a place of great need, nevertheless, to look just around our workplace, our families, right, the, the people in our, in our lives. We live in a great place of need, and I think we live in a culture that is anti-pain, Right? We live in a culture that kind of stuffs it down. We don't, we don't want to deal with that. We value authenticity, but we don't, we don't really want to feel things. Right? We stuff it down. We move on. We fill ourselves with stuff and social media and, and, and things. And even the church, I think we, we can have a culture that is anti-pain. Right? We, we want to come to be encouraged every week. We want to leave feeling just right so that it hits our lunch Right, right. We, we, uh, we, um, you know, we're, we. I think we're afraid at times of pain and and discomfort. Right. And while I believe encouragement ought to be a, a big part of what we do, uh, we also believe uh, w- what God wants to do is is allow us to feel His heart, what breaks His heart. And I think just like with the Jewish people. And in Nehemiah's days, we can get so accustomed to things, like Nehemiah and his people were for 141 years, so accustomed to a broken world that we get cold and turn the other cheek. God wants to break our heart for the things that break his heart. He wants to train us to be people who can sit in his presence long enough for him to impart what is on his heart to us. When you start seeing the world around us in his eyes, you find 
true purpose, and you start living differently. I believe God wants to break our heart with what breaks his heart because I believe you and I and Christ in us are the solution and the hope bringers, not only to bring eternal life, but to bring actual change, practical change around us as well. God, as he imparts his heart and sensitizes us to a world around us, is calling and imparting and anointing different ones of us to go bring his kingdom and his change, his good news out to the world around us. I know um, in my life this happened in, in different waves where God will call and speak to me, but every season where God has called me to something significant, he's taken me in a season of breaking my heart for it or at least opening my eyes to it. And I know when I say this, uh, there's a couple things going on. Number one, I know that if, if, if you're like me, you're like, I've got plenty going on. I didn't come to church to get a burden. I came to give a burden, right? We got t-ball, we've got softball, we've got, you know, stuff going on. You got, you got, class, whatever you got going on in your world, uh, you, you're probably like, man, I got a million things going on. <clears throat> but what, what I'm not asking you to do, and as we read this, as we look at Nehemiah's life and, and, a, and a man that God broke his heart to do great things through his heart, I'm not asking you to take on a million more things, although maybe God will call some of you to do something more. I'm asking to do what you're already doing differently. I'm asking you to not just approach life in a way to make it through your class, make it through parenting, make it through your career, make it through your job, make it through whatever season you're in. You're not called to just make it. You're called to find God in it and bring his kingdom and bring his purpose to it. Right? I would propose that if we not allow God to break his heart in the arenas and lanes we're running in, you're missing the life he has for you. God is not trying to just add burdens to us. In fact, I think when we run from the burden of God, it actually becomes heavier because we do the burden of God with God. And that's what you see in this text is that Nehemiah was a man of action. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But the first thing he did was take action and go straight to God. We carry the burden of God with God. Second thing I just want to acknowledge, it. I think we look at the news, we look at the chaos around us, and it's like three people died here, and this thing happened here, and there's a bomb in here. It's like, how can I possibly have any more emotion for the chaos of the world around us? And I think it's because, uh, first of all, it's impossible to care for everything and everyone all the time, and every time we open the news, like, stop and, like, feel things, you know, whatever. Uh, we're inundated by the world, and we're not made to run at the pace we're running at, right? We need to learn to put up walls like Nehemiah in our life so that we can focus on the things that God has called us to focus on. Part of that is making space to be narrower so our impact can be wider. Emotionally narrower in the things that God has called us to go into so that we can go wider in his heart. God wants to break our hearts for what breaks his, and brokenness precedes fruitfulness. What breaks your heart? 
I believe for some of us, God wants to deposit that for the first time today. For some of us, we've lost our why, right? We've lost our why. We've had God's heart, or we've experienced God's heart, we've felt God's call in some area or something, and somewhere along the way, we lost it, right? Use analogy, you can, you can be bored filling sandbags and frustrated that you have to sit there filling sandbags, or you can be reminded, right, that, and, and burdened that you are filling sandbags to save a city from a flood that is coming. Same job, but one is having a vision and having a burden. God wants to drop his burden on us. So we're in worship today. I was just so clearly, God gave me this impression of us drawing near to him in this intimate place and our hearts becoming one with what beats in his heart. It comes from drawing near to him where he can entrust you and I with his burden. And that is an intimate, holy, sacred place where God imparts a divine heart and a divine call into a human soul. I want to hit one last thing. I want to notice something about Nehemiah's response to God's burden brokenness. Let's look back at the text, verses 5 through 7. It says this, and he said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day before the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What you see happening here is the brokenness out there was leading Nehemiah into the brokenness in here. Nehemiah was not just broken for their sin and their problems and their, and he was going to come and be the hero. No, Nehemiah came to hero God and, and, and was broken over his own sin. He was broken over the sin of his family and the sin of his people and the sin of his forefathers. It wasn't just some, like, social work he needed to do, uh, although that is part of it, but it, he recognizes a, a matter of sin and righteousness. If we are going to deal with and bring hope out there to the brokenness out there, we need to be honest with the brokenness in here. If we want to go change your world out there, we need to be attentive to the change and the work and limitations that God is doing in here. You see this time and time again throughout church history. Whenever God moved powerfully out there in revival, it began with the church in here meeting God in their brokenness. The Argentinian revival, just amazing, the power of God, just supernatural signs and wonders, thousands, even hundreds of thousands being being saved. Uh, They said they knew beforehand, they knew it was coming because people were on their knees at the altar and the church was confessing sin. 
So what is a heart that God looks to? What is a heart where, where, um, that is postured for revival? What is the heart that the Lord can look to to entrust his purposes? Let me read a few passages. Isaiah 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God draws near, God looks for, God anoints, God moves in the heart that is broken, the life that is humble, the heart that is contrite. I think we get a little confused when we talk about this, though. Maybe we have some wrong ideas about what brokenness is and isn't. Being broken before God is not being always depressed, not always being introspective or fault-finding in ourselves or some form of self-hatred or false humility or something like that. It's not always being emotional and, and having tears. It's possible to experience deep pain and emotion and tears and not be broken, it's also possible to be broken before the Lord without shedding many tears. What it is, is, is uh, sometimes it's an event or seasons we go through, but it's more of a lifestyle. It's a choice we make. It's a heart posture we take. It's a choice of our will. As one person said, it's agreeing with God about the condition of my heart and life agreeing with God about the condition of my heart and my life. It's unconditional choosing to surrender to God. It's it's allowing the shattering of my self-will so that the will and life of God can come through my human body. It's responding in humility and obedience before God's conviction. It means we take off the masks. It means we take off the the pretenses and the things. We put our best foot forward in community. We put our best foot forward with the people and acting like we have it all together, which none of us do. And it is living honestly without walls in relationship with other people. It doesn't mean we tell every single thing to every person, but it means that those God has brought around us. We live honestly in, in humility. And you see that in Scripture again and again. God will contrast those who are broken and those who are unbroken. You see that with Saul and David. <clears throat> David was a man of great sin, he, he, adultery and murder, yet when he was confronted, he was broken. He, he, he was wept and got his face before the Lord. Psalm 51 outlines his deep repentance and, and, and sorrow, not for getting caught, but because of his brokenness and the sin against God. Yet Saul, we see on the other hand, who, whose sin was comparably less, you know, at least in our eyes, than David's. He, his response was rationalizing, justifying himself, giving explanations, right? And, and when, when he asked them towards the end, he said, just don't tell it to the people. 
covering up, right? But when contrary, when David was, was addressed, he fell on his face before God. You see this in different points, even in Luke, you know, there's two people praying, and, and one, it says, was praying to himself and said, God, I thank you that I'm more righteous than the other people. His prayers weren't even heard by God. He was praying to himself. And then there was another person that was, was saying, God, forgive me, for I've sinned. I have great need of you. Right? You see, we all struggle. We all sin. We all fall short. That's not the issue. The issue between broken and unbroken people is how we respond to God. Unbroken people are concerned with reputation. They're defensive. Unbroken people blame others. They, 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 they point fingers. They're quick to speak and slow to listen. Unbroken people confess sin in generalities, uh, not vulnerable. Unbroken people have a desire to be served and be a success. They're, they're not aware of their true heart condition. And they're complacent and okay where they are because they think others need God and not them. But broken people are concerned not with self, but the glory of God. Quick to listen and slow to speak. When corrected, they listen. They lean in. <laughs> they ask questions, and they take responsibility if they need to. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. They're aware of their limits. They're aware of their need for God and others. They, they make plans prayerfully and then continue to live submitted to God and open-handedly with expectations. While they're at rest in God and where they're at in their process, they're always growing because their awareness to be filled, their desire and awareness to be filled with more of God and an encounter with him and in his word. And this looks differently for, for everyone. I know for me, it's come in waves that, that uh, I got saved, God is doing all this stuff to me, people are coming to know Jesus and all this stuff, and, but I had a chip on my shoulder, I was frustrated with Christians, I, you know, I was proud, so I came in, and, and like we contend to do, I, I, I covered my issues in my heart with my theology and with my opinion that I had on everything. So I came into community, I had opinions, I had thoughts on everything, I had, you know, this and that, but I was just covering the insecurity and pain and fear of rejection in my heart because I was trying to be someone. And over the years, what God has done, <clears throat> you know, before I got saved, I was leading everything, and then I began to lead things in the church, and, and, and God would consistently allow me at different points to be disappointed. So I realized it wasn't, wasn't about me. God has consistently, uh, God has consistently exposed hidden desires to be known. And he's used disappointment to unearth my plans and open me up to his plans. And through that process, I found him as better than anything else. Through that process, I've fallen more in love with him. Through that process, I've looked more like him. And through that process, I've learned that his plans are completely trustworthy and his plans are better than anything I could have orchestrated in my own strength. In that process, I've gone from trying to make myself great to learning to make him great and looking more like him. I'm still in process, but I believe that 
that God takes us to the end of ourselves so that we can begin with him. God allows us to lose ourselves so that we can find him. God allows us to be in a holy place of recognition recognition of our need of him so that he can be God in our lives. 2 Corinthians 12 says, in our weakness, his strength is is, is perfected. Some of us, we've been trying to write our own story, and God is showing us our limits and bringing us to the end of himself so he can write his story in your life. And we resist that. We're afraid of it. We don't like it as a culture. That's not celebrated in our culture. But when we embrace his work of breaking our hearts and our lives, we find resurrection life. I believe God is doing that today. God is doing that in our lives because you are made for something bigger than your story. You are made for something bigger than, than, than the thing you could come up with. You're made for him and his glory and to be part of his story. And every place of brokenness and pain in our lives, not that we need to go look for it, but every time we, uh, we, we find rest in it and embrace brokenness, God makes us more like them, him and takes us a step forward into his story.